And now for the reading of God's word this morning, our text is Psalm 91, which you can follow along with in your pew Bible, or there's an insert in your bulletin or on the screen as well. Psalm 91, probably one that you heard at some time during the COVID pandemic crisis. Listen to the word of the Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge, his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the night in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray you would teach us today from Psalm 91. Help us to see you clearly, to hear your words, and to walk away changed today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we step into this text this morning, um, there's a couple of, couple of stories that I saw just this week that I think relate to the themes that we're going to get into with Psalm 91 for just a few moments. And one of them was a, an article I found on ESPN.com because I spend way too much of my time on that website on any given week. But this one was quite different than most, which was not Celtics related. Go Celtics. I had to squeeze it in somewhere. There it is, there's my one, I'm done with it. But this one was related to, the title of the article was, quote, sports venues create quiet refuge for fans with sensory needs. And this was really interesting, apparently there's, at at stadiums and arenas across the country, more and more places are setting up what they call, what do they call them here? Sensory nooks. They're like these little pods for people that get overwhelmed by the crowd noise or by the lights or the, the fanfare. They can go into this little nook and just kind of sit there in quiet and get their senses kind of back to them. And it's free. They're designed really for for people that maybe struggle with autism or ADHD, or as they call them, neurodivergent guests. Um, but it's really open for anybody that just needs a break from the noise or from the lights and need a refuge. So that's one thing I saw. Another thing that I saw was an article 
just from a couple of weeks ago that is talking about how in Turkey, they recently unearthed an underground city that may have been a refuge for early Christians. And they say that this city was probably built somewhere around 2000 years ago, right around the turn of the century, right around the time of Pentecost probably. And that it's possible that it originally served as a refuge or a hiding place for early Christians who were escaping persecution from the Roman Empire. They said it could go down as many as 10 levels underground and has space for tens of thousands of people, an underground refuge in southeastern Turkey. And then lastly, my wife and I were watching a TV show this weekend, and the name of the show is called Alone. And the premise of the show is they drop individual people alone in the middle of a wilderness somewhere. There's 10 different people, they drop them miles apart, and the goal is to see who can survive the longest without, without tapping out. They have a little radio they can call and tap out, but whoever stays the longest wins $500,000. And so there was one contestant on the newest season that we were watching this week. He's 23 years old, and he said this, I had a rough childhood. My father was an abusive, alcoholic father. And when I was a child, the outdoors became my refuge, my solace. I threw myself into the outdoors and I found solace and refuge there. Throughout those three examples, the, the need for refuge is clear in a variety of ways. Humans, we as humans need refuge. We are, we are exposed people to troubles, to disease, to, to dangers, to the weather. We are exposed. We need a place that we can go into to find shelter. We can only live out in the open for so long. I, I have this distinct memory when I was a kid, I went to a summer camp one summer and it was out in the mountains, but there was the, the, the playing field where you go and play soccer or baseball or run around. It was kind of out in this big exposed open area. And in the summertime down south where it was, um, you could see the weather fronts moving in because you were kind of out in the open, you're exposed. I had this clear memory one day of being outside playing in this field and we saw these big dark black clouds coming in the sky. And we said, it's gonna start raining and it's gonna start raining fast. Like we gotta make a run for it if we're, or else we're gonna get caught in these elements. And so we took a, just a sprint 200 yards up this hill and literally right as we're getting up the hill into our you know, overhang, this pouring rain. But it's a great picture just of even the most simple version of needing refuge, needing shelter. And then I think about on this particular Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter two, which I read at the beginning of the service. It said that all of the earliest disciples were all together in one place under one roof. And the more we know about history, kind of like those, the underground city, people were already experiencing persecution for following Jesus at that time. They probably were in a refuge type of scenario where they were huddled in together. Jesus had just ascended into heaven 10 days before. And Jesus, when he went back up into heaven, the last thing he told them was he said, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
So here they are. For the last 10 days, they've been waiting obediently in faith for the coming of this invisible Holy Spirit. And after 10 days huddled in a little house together, they're probably starting to feel a little anxious and a little impatient. And then Acts chapter two happens and the Holy Spirit rushes upon them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking different languages, which again, remember none of that was part of the promise. They, Jesus just said, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then they experience it. What was their refuge that day? Was it the place they were in, the physical building they were literally inside of? Or was it something else? Were they in something even deeper that was protecting and providing for them as they were waiting that promise? The answer is yes, it was something else. It wasn't just the physical house that was their refuge. They were in faith waiting for something more. And so this morning, I'm gonna give just kind of three simple um, P words about refuge. Um, The first one is promise from Psalm 91. Second one is protection. And the third one is personal. Psalm 91, let's just get into the first one, promise. Psalm 91, if you read it again, you know, now or later this afternoon, you'll notice the word will or shall is throughout the whole psalm. It's a promise psalm. God promises to be the one sufficient refuge of every person that's ever lived. And if you read Psalm 91, I counted 25 promises in 16 verses. 25. That's a big list of promises. I'm going to just, let me, let me give you all of them again, real quick. You will abide in his shadow. God will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. God will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. God will cover you with his pinions, which are feathers or his wings. God will give you the ref, give you refuge under his wings. God will not let you fear the terror of the night. God will not let not let you fear the arrows of the day. God will not let you fear the pestilence of the darkness. God will not let you fear the destruction of the noonday. What happens to the thousands of people will not come to you. You will see the wicked people fall. No evil will come to you. No plague will come to your tent. God's angels will guard you. God's angels will bear you up. You will tread on the lion and the adder. You will trample the lion and the snake under your foot. God will deliver you. God will protect you. God will answer you. God will be with you in trouble. God will rescue you. God will honor you. God will satisfy you. God will show you his salvation. Amen. What a promise giving section of scripture that is. Now, if you're like me, you get skeptical about promises, right? Because a promise unfulfilled is not a promise worth giving at all. But what we see throughout the scriptures, so again, Psalm 91 is one of those great middle places of the whole scripture. But if you go Genesis to Revelation, you see it's not just Psalm 91 where God makes promises. It's throughout the Bible. And in the New Testament, Paul is able to say all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. 
God is a promise-making God. God is a promise-keeping God. God is the God of promises. His promises are abounding and ongoing. He extends himself to us, promising above and beyond really all we can ask or imagine. He pursues us. Last week, we talked about this beautiful phrase in Psalm 56, where it says, God is for you. He is your advocate. He is on your side. He is not working against you for evil. He is working for your ultimate good, meaning that the promises he offers to you, he will fulfill. Do you trust that? Psalm 56 was a lot about trust. It says here, verse two, my God in whom I trust. So the Psalm writer here is able to declare that God promises these things because he also trusts in God. But how can, how can you know for yourself that God will keep his promises as a promise-making, promise-keeping God? And this is what gets us into the second P, which is protection. And there's two verses in particular that I wanna look at that regard, they talk about protection in this passage. One is verse four, and one is verse 15. Let me just give an illustration before I look at those particular verses. I was thinking about um, places of refuge and good examples of refuge and bad examples of refuge, like in terms of protection. Um, any, any of you guys like horror movies? We live in Salem, we probably should like horror movies, right? I don't like horror movies myself. You watch a couple when you're a kid and you're like, you either love them or you hate them. I'm not really a horror movie guy. But one thing I discovered about horror movies is that if you're running from danger in the outside and you see a place of refuge that looks like a dark, scary house, you probably should not run inside that house for your refuge. Nothing good ever seems to happen when you're fleeing from the guy with the chainsaw and then you run into the dark, scary, abandoned house. And you probably shouldn't go all the way down to the basement where you can't get out either. Just not an example of a good refuge you should probably run toward. That's just my opinion. I haven't seen a good example of anything good happening from that. So if you're looking for protection, there are bad examples of refuge. And that's why I think to connect it to the promise-keeping, promise-making thing, I think there's some skepticism about how God offers protection because maybe we've gotten to the place where God has turned into the haunted house that we run into. It's like, now I ran into that house once and I, it didn't turn out well. And so what is God's refuge actually like? Because God's refuge is not the creepy haunted house that you run into and you can't get out of and it turns out worse than it was before. That's not a true example of God's real refuge. That's not the fortress that is, that is mentioned in the scriptures here. How does God provide refuge for us? And this passage really gives us two beautiful yet kind of paradoxical ways to understand how God provides refuge for us. Look at verse four. He will cover you with his pinions, again, feathers. Under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler two contrasting images of refuge. The first one is tender, loving care under feathers. Like a mother that protects her children. 
with wings exposed over us, protecting us in a nest. We are cared for like a nurturing mother by the Lord. Imagine the image of a mother duck walking her little ducklings across the street and the care that that mother duck has. No one wants to run over those ducks because they see the loving care of that mother or like a nest that comes under attack. All of us are on the side of the the nurturing mother in the nest, right? None of us are on the hawk's side in that example. We are all, we all can relate to that tender, loving care of a mother protecting her ducklings or her children. So that's the first way that God protects us in verse four, in tender, loving, gentle care. The second way, and again, this is nice that we have both men and women in this room because uh, maybe we relate to these differently. But the second one is, it says, his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. The second way is in this strong, assertive bravery, almost like a battlefield image here of a shield and a fortress, this impenetrable force that God is putting up in front of us saying, nothing is gonna get to you because it's gonna hit the shield first. It's like a warrior out in battle or like a big castle that has these huge walls. That's how God protects his people. Nothing can make a dent on him because he puts it up surrounding us. So maybe a better image for this is like if you go down to Boston and you take a tour of the famous ship USS Constitution, which is also known as Old Ironsides, because when the things were hitting up against the side of it, it would not go down. It absorbed all of it. How can both of these be true at once? How can God be both a loving, caring, tender, motherly care for us, and also this strong, assertive, battlefield-tested warrior protecting us assertively? How can that? How can both be the, the, the truth at the once. Both of them share in common this idea of God taking the harm on himself. You see that in both scenarios? One is again, kind of out in assertion with the shield. The other one is as, as the mother, but certainly feeling the weight or the attack on her wings, on her feathers, probably having scars while protecting us in that way. But I offer both of those to you as an image of how God cares for you. Comprehensive, beautiful care. And I do think the cross of Jesus is the place where both of those come shouting to us. When Jesus is on the cross, he is exposed for us. He is running towards darkness. He's running towards the defeat of Satan and the devil by running headfirst into conflict, taking our place, jumping in front of the bullets we were gonna take, taking our death on himself. That's the assertive, strong image. And yet, why is he there? Out of deep, fatherly, parental, brotherly love and care for us. Caring for us in a way that we long to be cared for and the love that we long for. Just as that alone contestant on that TV show I was telling you about had a, had a tough upbringing because his father was an alcoholic, was longing for refuge. When we look to Jesus on the cross, we see one who is the truest example of love for us because there was nothing holding him there other than just deep abiding 
love for us. The cross is a beautiful example of how verse four, both of those sides come together in one place. They crash together in grace for you and me. Now look at verse 15. Here's one other way that God protects us. So if God puts himself in harm's way for us, like, a, like the wings or like the shield, in verse 15, we learn that he doesn't protect us necessarily from the harm or from the danger, but what he does promise is to protect us in the middle of the danger. And that's a difference because none of us want to experience the harm, but once we're in the middle of it, we know we need someone to help us in the middle of it. Verse 15 says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. It does not say I will rescue him from trouble. It says I will rescue him in trouble. I will be with him in trouble. Troubles don't go away all the time. God does protect us from trouble, certainly. But what he does promise is to deliver us in the middle of them. And I, just to, to bring out this example, you may have picked up uh, on one of these verses, verses 11 and 12. They may have sounded familiar to you if you're familiar with the New Testament. Verses 11 and 12, it talks about he will command his angels and they'll come in and guard you in all your ways. Um, do you know who uses that verse in the New Testament? When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the temple and he says, throw yourself off the top of the temple, Jesus. Because doesn't the scripture promise that if you do, the angels will come and swoop you up and will deliver you? Do you remember what Jesus says in response? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He doesn't say God wouldn't do that because God does promise to deliver us. But he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. That's a malicious way of treating God's word. Satan twisting God's promise to try to get us to do something reckless and to say, God, if, if you were really God, you would deliver me from this terrible thing that's happening. And all the while, Jesus is saying, no, you trust in the Lord in his promises that he will ultimately deliver you in a deeper way you ever could have imagined. And you don't put him to the test by saying, God, why aren't you delivering me from this now? So yes, God could save us, but that's not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is the refuge of soul that God ultimately does win for us in himself. This is what true Christian belief is soul refuge. The point is that God is with us, teaching us and showing us something deeper about himself through the turmoil, ultimately providing something deeper for us. And this leads us to the last P. So we talk about promise and protection so far. The last one is personal. Personal. There are three because statements in this text. And they're really important. The first because is in verse nine. It says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge, no evil, no plague will come to you. The promise there is that the one who goes to live in God, like running into a house to escape a blizzard, 
That is the one who will not experience ultimate evil. The second because is in verse 14. This is where the next two both come from in verse 14. Because you hold fast to God in love, I will deliver him, God says. So the one that goes to God in love out of desperation, kind of like holding on to a life preserver in the middle of a rushing river, if you hold fast to him in love, God will deliver you. And then the last one in the second part of verse 14 is, because he knows my name, I will protect him. This is the one who has a relationship with God, like a child who cries out to their dad, dad, help me. No one else can help me. Because you know his name, I will protect you, it says. The personal aspect of God's refuge is what is at stake here. The one who can go to God, the one who loves God, the one who knows God's name, all that is personal. You go to someone and trust. You love them out of a place of personal connection. And if you know someone's name, that makes a big difference. All that is personal. All that is connected to the refuge that God is offering here. And again, I just, I want to trace this theme of refuge throughout the Bible. The theme of refuge throughout the Bible is, is one where God is ultimately providing for his people in every way throughout every situation in the scriptures. In the Passover, the plagues were coming upon Egypt and God promises himself as the blood, on the, uh, the blood of the lamb on the door frame so they would pass over the people. He's providing real refuge for people to keep them away from the death plague that was coming in the Passover. Think of the Old Testament sacrifices, the Passover lamb in place of the people on the day of atonement, their sins were covered. Think about the festival of the tabernacles or the booths where they celebrate coming out of Exodus and they literally set up for themselves little tents to remind themselves how God was their refuge when they were in the wilderness. But the ultimate place where we're gonna land the sermon today as kind of an entry point into the Lord's Supper is that the true synonym of refuge in the Bible, where it talks about God here being our refuge and our fortress, the best synonym for that in the scripture is the phrase in Christ, in Christ. The New Testament uses that phrase 165 times to describe what the life of a believer is. If you want to find the refuge of God, that phrase in Christ is how Paul and Peter and Jesus used, uh, they, that's, that's how they understood the refuge of God. He covers us. He becomes our shelter. His perfect righteousness comes upon us. When God looks at us, if we believe in him, what does he see? Does he see your fears? your failures, your sins, your struggles, your disappointments. Ultimately, what God sees if he looks at you as someone who trusts in Jesus, what he sees is your covering. He sees that you are literally in Christ. Christ covers you. His righteousness, his grace, his perfections is what God sees. He sees what covers you. He sees your refuge. 
He sees that you are living in Jesus. Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or Galatians 2, one of the most beautiful passages in scripture. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. But the phrase in Christ is used 165 times. God is our refuge. And that means living in Christ. Jesus is the refuge we long for. The invitation that Jesus gives us in John chapter 15 is a beautiful one. He says, abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. You see the, the two ways here? We live in Jesus, and he lives in us. It's this dual living. He becomes our refuge, and we live in him purely. This is what true salvation is. It's how the, how the passage ends. He said, I will show you my true salvation. Verse 16, that's what it is. Jesus the refuge and fortress for us all. Let me just finish with this little brief story as an intro to our taking of the Lord's Supper. There's a story of a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest named John of Kronstadt. And he was a priest at the time when alcohol abuse was really rampant where he was living. And it said that none of the priests where he was living wanted to go out uh, to help the people because of the fear of going out from their church as the place of refuge. To go out into the streets and help those who were struggling with alcohol abuse was dangerous. And most of the priests chose to stay in and wait for them to come to them inside. And yet John of Kronstadt was compelled by love to go out into the streets. It said that people, people said he would lift the hungover, the foul smelling people from the gutter, cradle them in his arms, cover them, and say to them, quote, this is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. You were meant to house the fullness of God. When Jesus dwells in you, you realize that your life is no longer yours, but God is living in you, covering you, fueling you, transforming you. Not only does he become your refuge, your place to hide in, but then he actually becomes the thing that makes you move, the engine that, that makes you go. And that's what happened to John of Kronstadt. And may that be the prayer for us as Jesus is our refuge and our fortress. Let me pray and then we'll serve the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we pray that these words will resonate with us in a place in our soul. We need you to cover us as our refuge and our fortress. Thank you that you are a promise-making, promise-keeping God. May our lives reflect you as the God who lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.